let me let me hype it. Man. What, okay, what, what is the price of the first book? How much? How much does it go for? Six ninety-five. Seven bucks. It's a pretty good deal. It's a good deal. It's yeah. a good deal. Let me tell you, folks. I came all the way from Cleveland up here on one day's notice. You would have dead air without me. I want you to buy <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let, let's let him vote. Which which would you rather have had? I don't know. Anyway, if I could get half of them to buy the book, I'd do good. Uh-huh. All right, this is six ninety five and seven ninety five. Now this is good stuff, folks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now I, you know, like it's entertaining reading. I, I think it's, it's fun. more than that. It's deep, man. It's deep. Yeah. So it's deep. Yeah. Now look at here. I got this is you know this isn't this superhero crap. This is a good stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is about life here. I've yeah. been praised by the New York Times here on the back. Yeah. Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Harvey, why don't you make yourself Wait, a, a superhero why like you're talking you just, about? Because I can sort of I have something in common with them, but. You know, man, I'm, you know, you, what did you call me, man? Like, uh, I don't know, something like one of, you know, the ideal, you know, like American youth or something. Uh-huh. I can see that. Uh-huh. Anyways, um, like, uh, these books, and I just won some kind of award, man. <laughs> from the, uh, uh-huh. Before Columbus Foundation. They yeah. probably won't give it to me now I'm on this show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> back to Vox Popcast. I am Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav, and I am here once again with Wayne Wise. Hey, Wayne. Hey, Mav. So? That's it. That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this topic was yours, though, so... Okay. Oh, good point. Yeah. (laughs) So I I hope you have more for the next hour (laughs) other than that. We're both very tired. Uh, As we said in the last couple episodes, you know, leading up, you know, we were moving very much towards starting the semester and teaching classes and Wayne has another job and (laughs) I teach I'm very much of the opinion that people aren't capable of learning before the hour of noon (laughs) so I like to teach afternoon classes but for some ungodly reason I got scheduled to teach at 9 20 which as far as I'm concerned might as well be 4 a.m. You didn't even know 920 existed before this week, did you? I had no idea. In fact, 420 would have been better because for, like 420. You're late then, right? I didn't mean that. Yeah. But <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, 4 a.m. I'm actually up yeah. frequently. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I usually go to bed around 5. And now I've been forcing myself to go to the bed, go to bed at the very early hour of 2 a.m., which is difficult for me. Yeah. And, and, so, <laughs> and I, I, I'm, so, too, I'm feeling as well. There's some tiredness. And, and some of it is definitely just it's a change in my schedule. And I, I'm doing more. And. And there's you know, some of the prep work that I am doing. You know, like this morning, I, I got up and I was focusing on next week's stuff because it was stuff I hadn't prepared for as much. And I, I thought, oh, I've got today. And this morning I realized, no, I need to insert like 20 slides into my presentation, don't I? Shit. <laughs> I will be doing that right after we finish this. I will be so. I, last time I taught this class, I taught it on a three day schedule, and this time I'm doing it on a two day yeah. schedule. So there's a lot of me. Oh wait, no, I need to do more in this class. And what can I rip out of? You know, yeah. Every week I have to eliminate one class and combine it into the other two. It's a, yeah. There's some work there. Yeah, it's weird. So weird oh, it's technical our, stuff that our, our, no our, one on this listening to this show cares about our, at all. Our horrible hard life that's making us tired. So yes, yeah, my. It, the horrible 
horrible job where I have to actually get up and get paid to talk about comic yeah, books. Yeah, it's, I did, awful. Yes, it's, it's awful. <laughs> but, but enough bitching. We have a, <laughs> yeah, enough, <laughs> so enough of that. Again, you could tell we're tired because we're being goofy, you know, as opposed to the normal, completely awake goofiness we have. But <laughs> But we have returning to the show after actually not that long a break. You were here a couple of weeks ago. It's and I'm going to remember this time. It's palindrome Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Hannah. Hannah Rogers is back. Hey, Hannah. Hey. Uh, and uh, just so you know, um, I'm preparing for a hurricane on top of it being again the semester. So that's a lot. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's the exciting part. Yeah. She is on the show from the path of Hurricane Florence in North Carolina. This is like one of those news shows where we have a, a correspondent standing on the beach waiting, <laughs> waiting for the hurricane. This is great. No. <laughs> yeah, this is, well, she's not that close to the beach, but, <laughs> but you should have driven out uh, there and just like stood there and people were like, what are you doing? Are you recording a podcast? podcast uh, having no. gone through Katrina <laughs> on the coast of Mississippi, I am, my hurricane days are over. Oh. Yeah, so you guys are far enough away they didn't make you evacuate. Yeah, um, it's going to, the latest tracking shows it's going to hit us not as directly as before, but uh, sometime Friday morning. Um, and they canceled school, of course, but we're still here. UNC actually is the school that freaked out and was like, hey, class is canceled after 5 p.m. on Tuesday. Everyone go away. Uh, so you know when they when they come back, there's going to be 47 new Confederate statues there. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is if you if you don't get that joke, listen to a couple of shows ago. We did a whole a whole episode about the monuments at UNC they, campus. They, they just washed up in the hurricane. We don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we're not going to do. A serious show about racism and Confederate monuments, and we're not going to do a serious show about hurricanes. What are we doing a show on this week? So, yeah, this week we're going to talk about genre, just the, the nature of genre. And, and I guess more specifically, what role does it play? I, I've been reading things. I've been watching things. I'm just I'm becoming more and more aware of, I guess, cross genre pieces, things that are you market it as this is horror, this is science fiction or whatever. But within that context, there are all these other genres. And you know, there's some ways that are obvious. I mean, that's always been true. You have a, a science fiction story and, oh, there's the romance subplot. So there's always been that sort of thing. But I'm talking more specifically kind of really overt crossing boundaries of genre kind of thing. So that's what I have in mind. Why don't we start a little earlier then? Because uh, let me be dumb guy listening to the podcast. This is my okay. new character that I'm promoting. Okay, good. Wait a minute. Good. Genre? What's that? There you go. That was, that was, that was that in was, character. That was good. That was good. Um, Thank you. Well, you dumbass. It's <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the dumbass is me, my character, not the members of the audience who <laughs> right, also yeah. don't know what genre are. No, I, you know, You're it's, very it, smart. Please yeah, love us. No, no, it's, it's a fair question. I don't know. Def, uh, dictionary definition. Genre is the way we define certain types of storytelling. You know, that Western is a genre. Romance is a genre. Horror is a genre. Crime fiction. Any of these things. And with those genres... We associate certain ideas and tropes when we're reading a Western or watching a Western. There are certain expectations we have based on I'm going to see a Western. It better have a horse in it. Right. So so that's kind of it. And I you know, some of it is just purely marketing, which I, I think we should talk about as well. Some of my mm -hmm. experiences, you know, trying to sell novels and, and, and short stories and that sort of thing. And the, the way genre plays into marketing and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I guess, you know, I. 
I'm not even sure what got me thinking about this other than I, I seem to keep encountering it in different things that I'm enjoying right now. So that's kind of where I am. That's my introduction. Uh, someone else jump in. Uh, well, for me, your usage of genre as a definition was pretty spot on. But in popular usage, it's always used to refer to a certain type of film, a certain type of book or a certain type of story. And we start talking about genre stories like the superhero yeah. story or the action movie or the um, the Hollywood romance, mm -hmm. the rom-com, as though good movies and books don't have genres. And of course they do. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is odd. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is a thing that um, like academics um, and scholars have kind of naturalized. I. I'm going to throw a name that no one reads anymore out there. Um, Spetson, like Todorov, um, he was a formalist and we share the same birthday, by the way. Um, Happy birthday. That's why he's really important. Yeah. I also the same birthday as Kesha, which is why he's super, super important. But one of the things he says about genre in his ridiculous essay, no one should ever emulate in writing is that there's like <laughs> literature and like high culture and then there's yes. you know popular stuff and genre and whenever you start playing around and changing the elements of genre it no longer is genre it becomes the literature and if you try and make it higher then it doesn't count anymore mm -hmm. so you can't have like a you know a high art mystery novel yes and this is something that to get into the weeds of academia <laughs> there have been fights over this throughout the different schools of, yeah. of literature yeah. for without exaggeration, centuries. Yeah. 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 And, and genres used as pejorative in, in, in that for so many people, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's seen as a bad thing. I remember you know, the, the comics thing, Harvey Picard, you know, American Splendor doing his you know, self-indulgent autobiographical comics. You know, and it's, he did a lot of really good stuff. I, I don't even mean self-indulgent as a bad thing necessarily. But I remember some interview I saw with him. This might've been one of his, his David Letterman appearances where he just kind of went on an anti-genre rant couldn't understand why anybody he just he wants to tell real life stories that's what he's doing he's telling the stories of his life this is real that's it why would anybody want to do a genre thing and you know, he's a noted curmudgeon which you know if you read his autobiographical stories it, it's but quite clear I, yes I, <laughs> but, but, but I'd, I'd make the point in comics autobiography is a genre <laughs> and lit in literature um, autobiography is yeah. several genres yeah. there are many times types right. of autobiography. yeah so so yeah i you know and we're not going to solve that argument for the the hardcore academics or the high brows and the low brows or whatever but um, oh, we never solve anything yeah. on the show <laughs> no we don't that's <laughs> kind that, of our that, thing that's our core <laughs> that's our core rule don't resolve anything <laughs> <laughs> Live with the questions. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, for myself, I, you know, I said in the the blog talking about this, just you know, there's certain genres I'm drawn to. You know, when I go to a bookstore, there are sections I look at and sections I ignore because I, I know my taste. But that said, I, I, I like to explore. I do like to try different things. Uh, mm -hmm. That's probably more true of me with music than it is with reading, though I have a pretty broad reading base as well. Um, Say, so I don't go to the opera section of the the record store. Because I'm just not into it. I've never been exposed to it in that way. But you know, we when we had our music episode, I talked about the, the thousand albums you need to hear before you die, and I listened to the whole damn list. And there's a lot of genres represented there. But you know, I'm into it, and I enjoy being exposed to the different stuff. But that's that's so much a marketing thing. There is an opera section at the record store, at least you know when there were record stores. Uh, it's it's a way to guide. It's a you know shoppers business it's it's a retail marketing thing as much as anything else well i think to carry on with the idea of record stores 
because I think that's one of the places where it clearly comes into play. Genre is used very much as a as a signifier for the consumer so that you can say, I'm a rock and roll guy. And then when, right. when there's too many rock and roll guys, you become, I'm a hard rock guy. I'm a soft rock guy. I'm yeah. a metal guy. Yeah. And then I'm a death metal guy. <laughs> right. And then you get like, well, I'm a hip hop guy. I'm a jazz guy. I'm a soft jazz guy. You, know, you, you start doing that. In infinite tendrils of, of genre. They're largely arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, if you look, I mean, because theoretically, if, if genres are a set of conventions and tropes that a, that a specific work adapts, what do you do for a song like, like Walk This Way by Aerosmith mm-hmm. and therefore a rock song, also by Run yeah. DMC and therefore a hip hop song? It, you know, yeah. it's largely arbitrary. It's just sort of a where do we fit this so that you know who to sell it to in that respect? And one of the places that this comes into play most clearly is, um, and I hate this. The music app iTunes. Mm-hmm. I love iTunes. It's what I use to organize my music, but it has one flaw that I absolutely hate. And that is for your music and for your movies that you store in iTunes, of which I have a lot because I'm a, you know, I love music. And if you haven't picked up on this show yet, I'm a huge movie buff. You're only allowed to choose one genre per media. Right. So if I have yeah. Captain America, the Winter Soldier. I don't know. Is that a superhero genre? Is that a spy genre? Is it a political thriller? Is it an action movie? I have to choose one Mm. and it's really irritating. So like I I put it in comic book movies because I just wanted it to be in the same category as the other Marvel films. But with the Marvel films in particular, Winter Soldier is a very different kind of movie than Thor Ragnarok. And I want to be able to say Thor Ragnarok's a comedy, but I can't say both. And also I end up with comic book movie as a very poor usage of a genre because I end up with things like um, Men in Black, Kingsman, Kingsman. History of Violence. History of Violence. There's so many. What was the one I was thinking of? Um, The one that won the Oscar, Road to Perdition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Road Road to Perdition is a comic book movie. No one knows that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it is. That that, that puts it in the same category as Scott Pilgrim. Yes. Right. So, uh, and I, I, you bring it in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, I think that's a prime example of that is you, they are seen at large as superhero movies. But yeah, as you say, you know, Captain America is a political thriller or a spy movie. Thor is epic fantasy that somehow becomes a comedy over the course of three movies. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy. And that, and that's been done. Yeah. When the, like Kevin Feig says like, oh, we want Ant-Man to be a heist movie. We want Ant-Man the Wasp to be our first romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Like they, they keep it fresh by bringing in other genre conventions mm-hmm. to interact with the superhero stuff. And, and it, it certainly reflects real life. I mean, real life doesn't have a specific genre, so it, it does break down the marketing. But, but you know, all those things comfortably existing in that same universe, I find mm-hmm. kind of fascinating because all those things exist in our universe. Right. That's absolutely um, the case. When we consume fiction, as consumers, we like nice, tidy boxes. So you like to be able mm-hmm. to say, this is a Western. I know it's a Western. You made the joke at the beginning. It damn well better have a horse in it. And I expect you guys to have Race. a shootout at high noon. And I expect somebody to be wearing cowboy hats. But then if I think of like some mm-hmm. of the great, you know, the greatest Westerns of all time is the point I make when I'm discussing genre in my dissertation. Two films that I think are in, in particular are very interesting to look, think of when you talk about the Western dances mm-hmm. with wolves. And mm-hmm. more recently, and this is the one that no one ever thinks of, but Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback Mountain is oh, yeah. a movie about cowboys 
it's a love story. It's about them being gay. There's a lot that goes on in Brokeback Mountain, but yeah, it technically should meet the classification of Western only. It's not really, it doesn't use any of the tropes that Westerns do. Like no one would ever actually call it that. It's just that if you sit there and think right. about it, well, it's a cowboy movie. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the things like, you know, I, I mentioned Serenity Firefly in, in the blog and, and that was one of, you just, it seemed to confuse people with the networks of it. It's got spaceships and Conestoga wagons. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, very definitely. I mean, it, it had, it had aspects of the tropes of both of those things. It was very overtly Western in many, many ways and a sci-fi show. It, you know, it, it, really was able to capture the the tropes of both of those genres and I think mesh them really pretty well. I mean, you know, the original Star Trek, you um Roddenberry pitched that as wagon train in space. Mm-hmm. So, so the, that that sort of genre bending has always taken place. I, I guess I you know to move this, I you know we're going around like we're we're saying some really obvious things. I you know you and I have talked about we're gonna talk about Riverdale again. <laughs> Anna, do you watch Riverdale? You weren't on that show. I I have watched Riverdale, yes. Um I Got annoyed with it. Uh, I'm sorry. You're no longer okay. But I, no, you don't count. <laughs> it's the best show on television. Everyone should watch it. Oh no, 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 no. That's no, no. Uh, but, I mean, I don't. I don't know if I should like say that. Like Judge Riverdale, though, given that I am happily reading Archie versus Predator, so you know. Well, no, I, I, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up because they're doing that on the show and they're doing that in the comics. You know, when we're watching Riverdale, Mav and I have, have talked about this. It's based on you know, a comic book and these fun young teenage characters, and and it's ostensibly you know nine hundred two one zero or Melrose Place or whatever. But if you if you look at the characters like Veronica and and her family, you, this season you, Archie gets involved with with her father in what is essentially a crime story. Yeah, there, Veronica lives in Mafia Land. Yeah, and Jughead is doing this Rebel Without a Cause story <laughs> arc, and, and and Betty is doing a detective story. Uh, well, actually, Betty's doing a detective story, and at the same time, a lifetime family drama. Yeah, well, and there's also elements of the horror story. There, there's the 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 monster in the black hood who's threatening to, to kill people. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of that, you know, Michael Myers, uh, Freddie, you know, Jason kind of thing going on with that. Mm-hmm. Cheryl is in a Victorian slash Gothic novel somehow. Yeah. 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 They're, they're the monster. <laughs> they're the monsters who move next door. And, and she was a superhero for a little while too. Well, obviously. Yeah. And you know, all of these genres are taking place on this show within the context of this larger high school romantic comedy. And, and I, I find that interesting that they're all doing that and say, once again, it reflects life, but I, I find that fascinating that they do that, that, that overtly on that show. And you know, with the Archie comics, you mentioned the Archie versus predator, the last several years, they've been doing that in the comics as well. Whereas here are these you know, funny cartoon characters have been around since 1940. Let's do a zombie story with them. That's really scary. You in the Archie Predator story? Are you, I, are, are you you're reading it? Have you finished it, Hannah? Spoilers. <laughs> no, you go ahead. It's it's hilarious. It's my favorite thing. It's hilarious. Yeah. But I, I found to me it was genuinely shocking because it, you know, it starts out as a typical Archie story, and what Betty and <laughs> Veronica get in, in classic yeah. the Carlos style for yeah, Archie. Yeah, yeah. And 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 there's a page you know very early where Be- I forget the details. Be- Betty and Veronica in a fight, something happens, and Betty gets a bloody nose, and it's actually kind of shocking because you never see that in Archie comics. And then two pages later, Cheryl Blossom gets her spine ripped out by a predator, and it's incredibly graphic. <laughs> 
and I knew that that was just, but there was that little lead up, just the bloody nose. I, I noticed because you don't see that in Archie, just that that level of, of violence or, or bloodshed. But they're they're doing that. But you know, they're also doing Betty and Veronica Vixens, where they're motorcycle chicks, and they're mm-hmm. doing Jughead as a werewolf. They're doing all these horror mashups. And you know, one came out today. It's called Archie 1941, and it's set in 1941, but. Unlike the actual Archie comics that came out in 1941, this has a very real world feel to it. It starts out with them graduating high school and on the news and the newsreels behind them, there's the whole, oh, Nazis, World War Two. You know, this stuff is happening and it has them genuinely concerned about, right, we, we might go to war. So they're doing kind of this wartime drama with with Archie and, and the cast and just the versatility of those characters to throw them into any of these settings and somehow make it work. I, I just kind of amazes me, but it also shows, I think the, the flexibility of what genre is and what it yep. means. I mean, like, do you, mm-hmm. do you watch, since we're talking about the CW sort of, do you watch other shows on the CW? I watch every show uh, on the CW. Yeah. <laughs> most, most of the superhero shows I'm, I'm still horribly behind on some, but don't worry about spoilers. I, I think that the CW actually is probably the most amazing channel to talk about genre on several levels because they have mm-hmm. shows. Well, they have their superhero shows. Mm-hmm. They also have Riverdale, um, which as we've said is kind of categorized as a teen drama, but goes beyond that. They have their supernatural fantasy shows in supernatural and, you know, older things like the vampire diaries and the originals that I think just finished or finishing. Mm-hmm. And then they have yeah. probably like two of the most interesting shows on television that literally no one's watching Jane, the Virgin which is a telenovela adaptation, uh-huh. but is also like 20 other things. Mixed with American comedy elements. Yeah, it's so bizarre. And yet yeah, works. I don't, I'm not caught uh, up on Jane the Virgin. I'm, I, I'm, I, I miss some of them. I need to catch up, and I've, but I've watched a lot of them. It is yeah, so I, innovative. I've actually taught it. And uh, <laughs> my students, I, I taught in a mystery fiction class. And my students were like, I don't know about this. And then they watched the first couple episodes and they were like, okay, yeah. And also like, let's watch another five episodes in class. And I was like, no, we're going we're gonna to talk about this now. Uh, it's really addictive. Um, <laughs> and then the other show is uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is which was like presented as a romantic mm-hmm. comedy musical. Mm-hmm. But one, it more than Jane the Virgin subverts romantic comedy tropes like there there's this whole subplot where the main character rebecca finds herself in a love triangle she sings a really hilarious song called the math of love triangles if you're a math nerd look it up you don't need to watch the show it's just really funny she she sings this whole thing uh and then she tries to like choose between the two guys and then it completely explodes and it's not your typical you know cw cliche like going back to gilmore girls should i choose logan or Jesse, yeah, like, um, right, Jesse, yeah, uh, so Crazy Ex Girlfriend is a show, while it doesn't break the fourth wall per se, it is aware, it is a show that is very self aware of the fact that it is a show on CW doing the romantic love triangle comedy tropes. It knows what it's doing and it's trying to comment on it as it yeah, goes. It's, it's really cool. And the, but the really interesting thing about the CW is, is that for years and years and years, it was seen as like the network that hosted Gossip Girl and shows like it. And it was seen as the Teen Girl Network. And then they went away from that mm-hmm. and now have a bunch of CW superhero shows like The Flash and Arrow, which have gotten really popular. And so it's like this weird like mashup mm-hmm. of like some teen drama like 
girl coded things and now like things that are kind of coded teen boy. Um, and people are now taking it more seriously because Mm -hmm. of their genre bending stuff. In fact, it's like the only like broadcast network, I believe that's really like been pretty stable in the numbers as broadcast live television has like viewing has gone down. Yeah. It is not the highest rated network. In fact, it, Oh no, it's the lowest. It's consistently fifth, <laughs> but it is consistent. Like there, their numbers there are, you know, there are times where I don't like the flash or arrow as much as the other times. There are times where I don't, you know, I don't love everything that's happened on Riverdale, <laughs> but again, still best show on television. No. However, <laughs> <laughs> they, so so good so good anyway give it a a chance give it like six episodes and you'll be hooked telling you anyway the but i think one thing that you you said they you know they move from marketing towards teen girls to marketing towards teen boys and and you know when we did our riverdale episode we you know we went and booked a couple of teen girls just to talk about the show um but i think one thing that is amazing about they weren't as enthused about it as either Mav or I proving that we're the, we're the real teen girls. We're the real the 15 year old girls. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, but one thing that's amazing, I mean, you said they moved from a teen girl to a teen boy metric uh, demographic, but one thing that's amazing about it. And I think people miss is every show I can think of on CW and I quite possibly every show currently that they are airing is a soap opera. Some people don't realize it. And yeah. in fact, it's amazing if you watch the message boards when, you know, your classic comic book geek boy gets very upset that why are we doing all this yeah. soap opera shit on Arrow? It's like, because Arrow's a soap opera, dude. Yeah. You're watching yeah. a soap opera. And, it's and, good and, have, and have you read comics? Because so are they. Yeah, so are they. <laughs> yeah, but, but there was one show where I, can, I don't remember what happened on the episode, but I w- went and read the message boards afterwards because it was a very feminist episode of Supergirl. It was explicitly feminist. And then I go and check all the comic book chat rooms and there's all these people complaining. It's like, typical CW, why are they pushing their feminist network agenda towards me on my superhero shows? And I'm just here to be entertained. And I'm like, you're watching Supergirl. It, like the entire concept of the show is that she's a feminist superhero. I don't think you know what you're doing. And one, my point is, I think one of the things that you get was genre. Obviously, I'm joking, but but I I love Riverdale. But I know that there are a lot of people who never gave Riverdale a chance. You're not going to get your classic comic book geek to just kind of go and watch Riverdale because it seems weird. That they might give a chance just because it's comic book based. But we did our show on coming of age stories and I talked about how much I loved the movie Lady Bird and how much I loved um I also agree with this. The movie the year before that, Edge of Seventeen. <clears throat> and and I agree with the, both of those. Yeah. Yeah. This year my yeah, this year my pick for that exact category is eighth grade which had not come out yet when we when we did that show but coming of age story much younger which was interesting but when those movies happen and when you when you end up with a lady bird i I remember getting into arguments with people when lady bird came out and you know it was it was making its oscar push and i said it was my favorite movie of the year and i had a lot of people telling me no wonder woman was the best movie of the year if it doesn't win best picture it's fixed and i was like no wonder woman wasn't the best movie of the year wonder woman was a really really good superhero movie that i very much enjoyed and they're like no it was easily the best picture it was the best dc movie that year absolutely (laughs) and i was like so somebody told me well no it was definitely the best film of the year and i said well did you see get out or Lady Bird 
or Shape of Water. And and they said, no, no, I didn't see that. I, I really only go out and watch the superhero movies. And it's like, well, OK, so it was the best movie you saw that year. Right. Of the five superhero movies that came out. And what I realized is, I mean, you look at the financial returns, you're not going to get the same amount of people going to see a Lady Bird as you are going to see a Wonder Woman. You're not going to get the same amount of people giving a shot to every show. So if you do something, if you mix a genre, if you want to make a message, if you want to have a story, a feminist story, if you want to tell a story about a lesbian love story, which was it was one of the central storylines on this year's Supergirl, last year's Supergirl, a lesbian love story. And what happens when two women fall in love and one really wants to be a mother, which is a problem with all with all same sex relationships is, you know, how do you worry about children and what do you do in a relationship, any relationship where one person wants kids and one person doesn't. That was a very big subplot for the early season. Mm -hmm. And really it had nothing to do with the superpowers, nothing at all, but a story that was just about that. A lot of people wouldn't watch. So you mix the genres, you say, we're going to put this emotional relationship story, which would be completely at home on any daytime soap in America. It would be completely at home on, you know, any prestige film. So you, you know, you, you move it into a Supergirl. You move things like that onto into uh, like this year's arrow. The central theme wasn't really the fight. The central theme is what happens when a person, you know, alienates every friend he has. That was the story of arrow this year. And I thought it was great. And yeah, I guess he was, I don't even remember the bad guy's name. Doesn't matter. <laughs> what it was really about was like the bad guy this year on arrow was Ali. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Ali has just turned off all of his friends. And then that's, Genre is a way of of limiting perspective as well. It, you know, it, it becomes, oh, I don't watch those kind of movies. Oh, I don't listen to country music or whatever. So, the only way you can be exposed to some of these ideas, you know, so, so many of the the classic cliche superhero fans, those guys on the message board you were talking about, and they're all guys. Mm-hmm. They they would never watch a show about that topic. No, unless there's superheroes involved, and then you can sneak it in. You, it, it's it's like it's like hiding the medicine in the dog food. It's good for you, but you're never going to eat it otherwise. You know. <laughs> so I, I I find that interesting as well. It's like you, the what are the reasons they do those kind of things in these stories? And some of it's just for plot and story. I I don't think there's this agenda of like, ooh, we need to teach the fanboys about the gays. Uh, so. I don't know. Sometimes I think that is the agenda, and, yeah, I, and, I, and I'm okay and, with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, same here. I'm okay with that as well. And I, I think there are bigger stories that, that need to be told and, and more personal stories mm-hmm. in the context of these different genre tales. Uh, you know, that to me, that, that's what pushes the envelope of genre. I, I do want and, and probably bring this. I know I talked about this on last week's episode in a different context, but you, one of the other things that one of my, my favorite comics that I, I mentioned far too often is Love and Rockets. And I think mm-hmm. that in particular, Jaime's story, the Maggie Hopi Locust stories, he has created a world there where just all these genres coexist. And I, he's done it in a different way than, than Riverdale. There, there's a certain, there's one very specific aspect of it that I want to talk about where it's, it's kind of a postmodern take. Uh, interviews I've read with Jaime, he talks about just, he grew up reading comics. You know, he's my age, essentially. Grew up reading everything, all the superhero stuff, but he read you know, the horror comics and, and the crime comics and tons and tons of Archie. You know, he's, he's heavily influenced by, by Archie stuff. The Dennis the Menace comics, he talks about Hank Ketchum just being influenced as an artist. But he's created a world where 
it's the world of comic books. His characters exist in a world where all those things exist. And and he's done every it. once in a while. Oh yeah, there's dinosaurs here. Yeah, and that's it. and he's, he's done it kind of. I, I don't want to say seamlessly. It seems that way to me now after 35 years of it. But you know, it started out as as you know, you know, Maggie and Hopi existed in a world where you know they they were just common people in this world. But you kind of knew the Fantastic Four were fighting Galactus just over the hills someplace. They were the normal people in a world where abnormal things happened, and they encountered spaceships and dinosaurs and. And you know, these science fiction elements. And over time, a lot of that just completely went away. And there was a long period where he was just telling these human interest stories. And in more recent year, he's brought some of those sci-fi elements back. He did a story arc called The Return of the T-Girls, which is a, a superhero team that exists in that universe. And one of them lives in the apartment building that Maggie manages. And like we'd seen that character and we knew she was a superhero, but then he just does this whole superhero story and Maggie is a side character in it. But it's very overtly set in that world, reminding you that, oh, yeah, there are superheroes here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't know. I mean, the, yeah. the guy who lives across the street from me now that I think about it is a cop. But yeah, it doesn't like I never talked to him yeah. about it. I, like I just I just forgot until just now. Yeah, there, and, there were, and I mean, there was an earlier story. Policemen live in my universe, yeah, right. so I don't think about well, that. It, it, you know, Maggie's you know, managing this apartment building. And occasionally she sees one of the neighbors you know, like fly out of her window. And, and, and it's just this little you know, throwaway thing in a previous story. And you, it reminds you, oh, yeah, superheroes are in this universe. And Maggie's like, hey, hey, she just flew out. She's got powers. And then she goes on to whatever else she's doing. And then later, those characters get their main stories. But there's you know, the, the characters in that you know, exist in different universes. Maggie's story is really essentially a romance comic. She's existing in a romance comic most of the time. Her friend and sometimes lover, Hopi exists more in an independent comic but the the one that i find fascinating and this is something that was only possible over the course of him doing this for 35 years there's the character of penny century uh beatrice but she mm-hmm. goes by the name of penny century and penny is the buxom blonde absolutely beautiful is built like a classic superheroine who in the early part of their stories penny wants to become a superhero that, that that's her goal she wants to be a superhero and she does one of the things Jaime has done in his series is he's allowed all of his characters to age. They were teenage punks in 1982. They're now all in their 50s and, and leading their life. We've seen that change happen. Penny is still the beautiful, buxom, 22, 22 years old. Years yeah. old. She, he's, he's, she, Penny is the character in the book who has not aged. Penny got married. Penny has had children. She has not changed at all because she's a superhero and superheroes don't age. And nobody in that world questions that about Penny. They'll make them. No one mentioned it. Yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll comment that, you know, Penny looks great, but it's just in this context of and she always has nobody's you know, there's not a subplot of why isn't Penny aging? <laughs> of course she doesn't. <laughs> and I I find that use of genre within this this one story to be really interesting and, and fascinating how, how he's able to just take these different comic book worlds it, it, in many ways, part of the reason I love Love and Rockets is being a kid who grew up reading comics. He has created a comic book world that represents the world I kind of always lived in in my imagination because I read all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's created a consistent narrative world where all those places, all those things exist and they don't contradict each other. Does that make any sense? Am I, am well, I just rambling? Yeah, it does. And I, and I wanted to tie that in because. So one of the ways 
genre works, we said from the very beginning, it's it's the collection of conventions and tropes that make a story work. We, and there are rules that you accept. You accept that in a Western, you can go shoot people. You can go shoot a lot of people with very little ramifications, unless the storyline specifically calls for it. You accept that in a superhero story, people can fly. You accept it, that in a romantic comedy, people can do things that frankly would be super creepy in real life and that you <laughs> that wouldn't be cute and that you wouldn't really want to fall in love with. You know, people can stalk each other and they just fall in love. Yay. You know, those are sleep is in Seattle. Yeah, sleep is in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. That, that is, sleep in Seattle is not. A, oh, I flew across the country to meet someone I met on a chat room. Call the cops. Seriously. Get right. don't, <laughs> no, don't meet that guy. That's a bad idea. No, no, no wonder you're sleepless. You have a stalker. You can't be safe. And, and you know, this, this movie is so problematic when you, when, you, when you break it down, you actually think about what's happening. But yeah, those things work. However, the audience is in on the rules. What makes genre work is I know as a comic book fan that if a nuclear bomb explodes in my face, I will get superpowers and not die along with the rest of the city. I will be able to turn into a giant green rage monster. That's what happens. <laughs> that's what happens in comic books. Oh, he got, I mean, cause that's the Hulk's origin. He got nuked. Why isn't he dead? No, that that's okay. He got powers because that's how comics work. And I accept that. And one of the things that you're talking about, you know, I accept that Penny doesn't age in, in love and rockets because of course she doesn't, she's a superhero and love and rockets is about playing with those tropes, playing with the genre conventions, meshing them together. And it's not just a story in the genre, though there's nothing wrong with that. It is a story that comments on the genre. Yeah. No, I was going to say, just to, to finish up with the Love and Rocket stuff, the image you you chose last week to post on the blog or this week that, that she's, popped up on the blog. Yeah, she's young. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it. Like there's there's all these characters you know, sitting around a table together and on the wall, there are pictures of, of friends and whatever. And they're all in their 50s now. There's a variant cover that was done for that. It was actually the, the back cover of, of they do two covers. They, you know, Jaime does one. Gilbert does one. But there was a variant of and it was that exact same issues. Exact same pose, exact same drawing of all those characters sitting in the same positions when they were young. And Penny looks exactly the same in both of them. So you can see the overt aging of all of those characters in those two drawings. Right. And, and, and he's there. So it's, it's not like Jaime is not aware of, of what he's doing with this. Yeah, yeah. He, he is specifically commenting on the fact that superheroes don't age. And he is mm -hmm. also making the Loco stories. That entire yeah. storyline is essentially what does a romantic comedy look like? in this world. And mm -hmm. that yeah. reminds me of, and by the way, the reason Hannah's on this particular show is because we, we wrote this sort of thing and then Hannah commented immediately and it's like, Oh, well, do you want to just do the show by yourself? Because you clearly <laughs> have thought about this more than we have. <laughs> so, but you, you mentioned the show outlander, which is another one I think that is very aware of what it is doing with. I mean, someone else commented on outlander and said like, uh, I quoted from the author's website and it's been classified as everything from like just romance to, you know, paranormal, oh, yeah. supernatural mm -hmm. to like military history to horror. Like, yeah. Yeah. Amy mentioned it. I'm going back. I see yeah. Amy mentioned it originally. And then you, you referred to, yeah. you responded so, to her. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of like, Things like this kind of popping up now. Um, Outlanders, I think, probably like one of the best popular examples. Um, mm -hmm. I 
you know, I, I don't know what to do with it except to think about it in context of like the greater like thing, like the greater, you know, romantic tropes that it's coming from partially because I have someone in my program, Zoe Ekman, who has written on Outlander and the 18th century novel. And, you know, like if you want to go way, way back to something like Pamela by Richardson. And for those of you who don't study the 18th century, uh, it's, it's kind of considered like the first marriage plot novel. Uh, and it's, it is super freaking creepy. And actually like, if you, if you want to talk about like, why, why? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This is why romantic comedies are creepy. Quick plot overview. Cause I know it's about, let them know the base premise of Pamela. Because Wayne, do you know the book? I am not. No, I'm not okay. familiar with this. This is, remember how I said romantic comedies are creepy? Uh, okay. <laughs> here we go. All right. So Pamela, a very literate servant girl goes to work for a dude named Mr. B. And Mr. B decides he wants to sleep with her. And she's like, no, I'm virtuous. And at one point, the turning point of the novel where it becomes a quote unquote romantic is he tries to rape her and she resists and blacks out. So he doesn't. And then he falls in love with her after trapping her in his house and trying to rape her and they get married yeah. and he's still a creep. And like you, you can kind of go through like the romantic history of the novel to jump forward into the 19th century, something like Jane Eyre and you know, Rochester, who's still considered a romantic hero to this day is this like, you know, super creepy dude who, if you haven't read Jane Eyre has a secret wife locked in an attic and at one point threatens to rape the heroine because she's not <laughs> going to be his mistress. And then, and then you jump forward to something like twilight and well, there's not rape in twilight, you know, that like Edward Cullen and Jacob, whatever his name is, are like the most controlling people in the world, which is no surprise if you read Fifty Shades of Grey or watch the movies that Christian Grey is a super creepy dude who has a person sign a contract, which actually, if you look back at Pamela, there is like a contractual like language and contract in relationship terms. So uh, this is all to say that if you look at Outlander, like that entire series is just like full. And this is like what um, Zoe has talked about. Like it's just full of rape. It's full of violence. So it, even as we like move forward in like genre and like, add, you know, you add new things like time travel because, you know, for all the weird crap going on in Jane Eyre, she's not time traveling. So the, the same stuff just comes back up again and again and again. And I think it's important. But on the other hand, even though like that same yeah. stuff comes up again and again and again, it's important for us to look at what's changed. And rape is unacceptable in this day and age. Bold stance there. Yeah, yes. I, well, you, you, you know, yes. in 2018, it's amazing what to me what a bold stance is. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I, I, I take that back. But, you know, <laughs> but so like if you look at the books, Zoe has said, you know, they, they actually don't talk about rape in the same terms <laughs> that they do in the television show. They, they change things. So right. it's important to look at something like that and see what's changed. Like what, what happens to a romance when you add time travel in it is, you know, like there's the constant like negotiation between the contemporary period and the values of the contemporary period and the values of, you know, 18th century Scotland. And even and that's even true for the books when it goes back and forth. So I think I think that's one way to deal with John, like going back to Riverdale. You can look at like how it used to be like this mm -hmm. really like happy comic where like there it avoided conflict so much that 
Archie's never really picked Veronica or Betty. He like they literally write different timelines in some cases where he's married to one and he's married to the other. Yes, yeah. Archie gets married. Oh, 2015. Uh, Laura now, I think. So I think somewhere recently, yeah. yeah they, they but they had that ser- that storyline. Yes, the Archie gets married, and, and they couldn't decide, so they just wrote him being married to both of them in different so stories. What you know, what changes whenever they actually want to address like a darker, grittier side of Riverdale? So because that that was that was like what was mm-hmm. really interesting from the moment that the show got picked up by the CW. Well, so, and I'm, I'm going to just read a, a little bit of Amy Hummel, who has been on the show before, as her daughter was on the Riverdale episode. She mentioned with Outlander, she said she would personally call it historical fiction, but she's aware she says it takes place in a few times that are previous to the present. And the main characters are not actual people, but from time to time, they interact with historic people and, and, and events. But that said... She is also aware, and she quotes the author's website, that it's hard to call it historic fiction when you're tossing in time travel of characters who are aware that they are interacting with the past. And that's that's that mixing of tropes, that mixing of genres that I think I think is actually super common right now. Like when when something sticks to only one genre, particularly with film, we almost tend to get bored with it. That's when we to go back to the earlier points. That's when we start calling something low culture. and I'm going to go out on a limb here and mention something that I know a couple of couple of friends of ours, of, of Wayne and mine, are, are very into the concept of like the Transformers movies and or the Transformers franchise in general. And this has that problem with the films, the films that the Transformers made. They they were genre films first. They didn't have a lot to say. They're just like, no, what's important is the robots battling each other. The comics tend to do to try and do something a little more than the modern comics where they're they're playing with it. But the films themselves, up until the most recent one, which was awful, just positively awful. They're 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 mostly just trying to to say, well, what does it mean to have robots punch each other? And that's that's the important part. Logical consistency means nothing. Storyline beats mean nothing. It's just hitting the genre tropes. And now I bash it because I'm a horrible person who likes bashing things. But but the but that's actually kind of okay because what what makes the genre work is giving the audience the thing that they crave. The audience wants to be able to say, I like giant robot movies, give me my giant robot movies and I will see Transformers and I will see Pacific Rim. The audience wants to be able to say that. The audience also wants to be able to say, I love my Westerns. Let me see two guys shoot at each other. Yay. And then, but where I disagree is where I say you cannot transcend genre to become high art because you can. That movie's called Unforgiven. That movie's called Logan. There are many Westerns that have that have done that. I would argue that mm-hmm. Tombstone, the, the the good version of the White Earp story, is brilliant. It's historic fiction. It's a Western. And it is so well filmed and so well told because it takes those genres and it tries to say something with it. And I think that in one what you can do that in one genre, as Tombstone does, or you can mix genres as Logan does, or Firefly, to mention something we mentioned earlier, or Outlander, which is literally trying to make statements about the problematic views that we had when we romanticize history by taking a modern person and sticking it in that world. Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess you know, one of the questions is, you know, other than as a, a marketing thing, does genre serve any purpose anymore? You know, is is there anything out there that we go see that is 
this is just a western this is just a I mean, romance uh, you know or, or they are a mix of th- there's things. definitely like i mean like sure like a lot of like really good films are a mix of things or tv shows or what have you but i think that there are a lot of especially like cheaply made romantic comedies and i mm-hmm. i should i should not dog on the romantic comedy because like you, you know of all of all genres uh romance is like the biggest genre mm-hmm. in book sales at least yeah and, t- and tends to appear in every other genre to some degree or another. Yeah. And we, and we mm-hmm. ignore it or devalue mm-hmm. it or, you know, I mean, like Fifty Shades of Grey is terrible and deserves to be made mm-hmm. fun of. I agree. However, that book sold, sold millions and millions of copies, which yeah. means it made people happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey uh, reminded me of Jane Eyre, which is what inspired Twilight, which is what inspired Fifty Shades of Grey. And like knowing how Fifty Shades of Grey functioned helped me actually read Jane Eyre differently. So I can't say like it's a useless pile of trash. But now, but and now that I've qualified saying that we shouldn't write off romance, I'm going to say there's there's a lot of cheaply made romantic comedies that literally like do nothing new. Like you know you can you can go watch Amy Adams's Leap Year or something, and it's like the same like romantic triangle adventure. And it and th- mm-hmm. there's a lot of lazy writing in them because they're just relying on the tropes. I, I was at a writer, yeah. I was at and that, and that, I think that's another part of genre. It's it's comfortable comfortable for people. They get into this thing. This is what they read. Their expectations that are there based on the genre. That's what people want. It, it's not challenging, nor do they want it to be. I was at a writers conference years ago at this point, and I I met a couple of women who you know got their started writing doing Harlequin romances, and they wanted to do more than that. They they wanted to write. But it was it was a start for them. They they got the contract. They they churned out you know, sixty thousand words or however long those are. But they talked about the experience and just working with Harlequin, which still sell you know they 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 sell in crazy numbers. It was an absolute formula. I mean, mm-hmm. when you work for Harlequin, you were kind of told, and then on page thirty eight, this kind of thing needs to happen. And you could change the names of characters, and but you couldn't mm-hmm. be too exotic. You know, like Catherine's fine. Zoe might be pushing it. Um, and, and, and really they, they had some like really, really <laughs> hardcore specifics of what this is. So, you know, the, the term formulaic is applied to that. It, it's cheap writing. It, it just, it hits the notes and then moves on and that's it. We're comic book guys. And there was a Marvel formula that yeah still exists, but that was primarily most stories written between 1960 and 1988 yeah. <laughs> were at, at that at that same writers conference, you're talking to some some literary agents, and they were aware of the contradiction of their own what what they said they want and then what they actually represented. You, every one of them, to to a person, were looking for that brand new thing that was going to break open you know, the the book sales and 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 be the next big thing. They all wanted that next big hit, and every one of them was far more likely to buy the next cozy mystery because they know where that fits on the shelf mm-hmm. and they know who to market it to and they know how to sell it. That's what I was saying before. That comfort level is important. It, oh, it is. It you is. You know, what is the purpose of art? If you're going to be academic and you're going to be hoity-toity like like it's our job to be, well, art is to advance culture and is to make people think. And, and, and yes, that's all true. But on the other hand, some days after a long, hard day at work, I just want to come home and turn on the TV and watch something where I don't have to think and that just makes me happy. Yeah. And those... And yeah. there's a lot to that. There's a lot of reason for that to exist. The nice thing about, you know, one that that really 
takes a lot of crap here is, you know, the horror genre. And there's some really innovative mm-hmm. things. And then there are other things that are just, we must have a jump, well, a jump that, scare every 7.5 minutes because that's yeah, how it well, works. And there's that, there's that, there's that whole, you know, like ultraviolet slasher mm-hmm. genre as well. The, the B movies taken to the extreme. And I have some friends who are really into that stuff. Sure. You know, like none of them are good movies and they know that. And that's part of why they love sure. them. They're, they're in it for, for the schlock, the schlock mm-hmm. value. Because it makes you happy. And some of, yeah. Yeah. And some of those are, you know, pure, pure genre of, mm-hmm. of that type. They really don't incorporate much else other than that one thing. But and, and that that entertainment, just that sheer entertainment factor. Yeah, you know, I I cop to reading, you know, just dumb thrillers. Yeah, you know, I've read a lot of the 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 Lee Child Reacher novels and they're all essentially the same book. <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, there, there's a different plot and a different thing going on, but they're all essentially the same book. And I know that going into it, I still find them vastly entertaining in a I just need something to entertain me and take me away kind of way. Well, to, to predate Riverdale and, and, and even, just actually and, talk about Archie, I, I made this comment on the last show, but every Archie comic from 1940 till 1988 is seven stories, six or seven stories that are identical. It doesn't matter. The order doesn't matter. Yeah. Like Archie has Archie has like a few stories and he, they just repeated the same storyline over and over again. And they it, mm-hmm. nothing matters. That's not what Archie's about. about the yeah, and, yeah, and there's no continuity from one story to another. Well, the the Twelfth and Archie book that we've talked about before talks mm-hmm. about the story engine and just how these characters and their personalities, as thin as they are, these these real basic archetypes, just throwing them together creates these stories. And when you don't have to try to fit them together or build a continuity. You can just do it over and over and over again in, in various creative ways. And if you expect your entire readership to turn over every two years, which they did, then you can get away with that for a long ass time. For 40 years. 40, for 40 years. Yeah, 40 yeah. plus years. And, you know, with, without substantive changes in storyline or art style or anything, it just, it, it, and, but even for those who didn't turn over, there is a comfort level to that such that uh-huh. when Archie changed, a couple of years ago and they said, we're going to update it. We're changing the art style away from the classic DiCarlo style. And you know, he, how long, when did DiCarlo die? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Well, and, and, and I've seen you know, this yeah. in message groups and, and online stuff. I've seen, you know, old commies fans who have these fond memories of Archie, but honestly haven't read it in 50 right. years bitching about Riverdale and this new stuff. Like, Oh, that's not Archie. Right. That's not what my Archie yeah. is. Well, it's, and, it's what happens. Well, with, it's what happens with Star yeah. Wars. It's the, this is not what yeah. I want. Give me what yeah. I want. And there's a tension there, even though they haven't wanted it right. for 50 years. What does the audience want? And you know, at some point, you, you know, as the creator, do you have a responsibility to give them what they want to pay for? And you know, mm-hmm. just from pure capitalism. And on the other hand, what does the creator want to say? Which I think happens when you start defying genre. If you have a story engine as an Archie or, yeah. if you have, or as a Harlequin, romance novels, you have a story engine where you have rules where, which are essentially genre tropes, but storyline beats. At some point, you start feeling like you're not really writing. You're not telling a story. You're not creating. You know, you're just the hamster Filling making, in the, the yeah, making, making the will, the will turn. You're, you're, you're doing mad libs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if you're, good. if you're, yeah, if you're doing that, like, and I don't know the answer i think i think maybe you know the reason we're having genre bending tales the reason you're having storylines that do this is because i think at some point 
you people want to work within the genre but they want to do something new mm-hmm. and you end up with you, know, you, you end up with a movie like Logan because frankly they needed to maintain the license and do another X-Men movie or Wolverine movie and superhero movies make bunches of money but someone wanted to do something different mm-hmm. and I think that happens when a genre gets popular yeah Unforgiven mm-hmm. breaks a lot of the tropes of the western which makes it mm-hmm. a really good western yeah, and it's and I and you know we 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 made a joke earlier about Justice League. Justice League, frankly, is a completely serviceable superhero movie. Yeah. I didn't love it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> There's I, nothing. I, I I didn't hate it, which in the DC movies is an accomplishment. <laughs> right, and and the, and the thing is, as as much crap as I give Batman versus Superman, because this is not a good movie, they were trying to do something different. Yeah, it didn't work. It you know they did something different and awful and if you like that movie I'm sorry you're you're wrong you're allowed to be wrong <laughs> but, but but they made a shitty movie and they and and but they were trying to do something different Snyder was trying to look at what are the tropes of the superhero movie and how can I screw with them and do something that I think is interesting and I happen to disagree with his interest and that's. he made a billion dollars and i didn't you know that's right but but the problem is after that they do they get down to justice league and because his movie made a billion dollars and yet was controversial no one showed up to see justice league it -hmm. was frankly there's nothing interesting about it it is the formula for a superhero movie to the mark we have to go get the thing to stop the guy and that's a, and that's what they do. It is, and we can't get the thing alone. So all of us have to team up and get the thing to stop the guy. It is the same story as Avengers, except that Avengers turned out to be more interesting because not only was it first, they did it in a more interesting way. They played inside the genre rather than just giving you the genre beats. Well, I guess that leads to another question: I, is you know, playing with the tropes of a genre how? How much can you break the tropes of a genre and still be considered that genre? You know, at what point do you break it to the extent that people who like that genre just can't accept? And that's more rhetoric. Are you no longer a superhero? Yeah. Yeah, this is like the thing I I stupidly, I guess, tried to answer in mm-hmm. my mystery fiction class um, when I themed it around genre. And uh, for the first half, I had them read typical things, you know, Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes. Blah blah blah, and the second half I did weird stuff like Jane the Virgin and Colson Whitehead. Um, which, if you don't know Colson Whitehead, he's a really interesting case of like mixing like genre fiction and quote unquote high art. He he, if you know him for Anthony, you might know him for writing the Underground Railroad, which was in Oprah's book club. Okay. Um, but he but he also wrote two earlier novels called uh, One's the Intuitionist, which is what I taught. It's a speculative mystery fiction ish novel set in an alternate universe in the United States in the like vaguely 1950s you can infer based on the book and uh it features elevator inspectors who yeah like it, it, it's like a world of elevators and it's very strange and I can't really explain it and <laughs> like the the mystery is someone sabotaged the elevator And the first black female elevator inspector feels as if she's been framed. So she has to like figure out who did it. So like the elevator is the victim and all this other weird stuff happens. And then the other um, is zone one and it's a 
zombie apocalypse novel, which whenever I uh, gave it to some non-academics to read, they told me it was a slow plotting book on modern capitalism and it was not the zombie page turner I thought it was. Um, <laughs> so when I when I assigned Why can't it be both? When I assigned the intuitionist, my students were like, This is too far. This is a high art <laughs> social commentary. They, yeah. they they bought Harry Potter as mystery fiction, they bought Jane the Virgin, they bought Zootopia. Apparently, Colton Whitehead mm. snapped. But just broke them. Well, you, you're, you're describing that. You know, one of my my current favorite uh, ongoing comic series from Image is East of West, and people ask me what it's about, and it's a <laughs> science fiction post apocalyptic Western set in an alternate history where the civil war never ended. And Oh yeah, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are in it. Uh, and it's all those things and more, and it's really neat, but you know, someone's <laughs> asking for a, a specific genre. What's it about? Well, um, well, D death and his girlfriend gave birth to Babylon who may bring about the end of the earth. Uh, <laughs> That's and that's maybe what genre is for, though. So you can't describe. I, I am familiar with East of West, and it's hard to describe because, like, it doesn't. It, it doesn't really tie itself into any genre. It's yeah, just here's it's, some stuff I want to talk about. Yeah, and, it's, it's all those things I just said, and yet none of them really. You know, yeah, it, it has tropes to the western. It's not a western. It's you know. And, and, and frankly, it's not, you know, I tried it. I mean, it's several issues in. I read the first one and I was like, mm -hmm. eh, I don't care. <laughs> so it never grabbed me and it might, mm -hmm. it might have gotten better, but I know people do enjoy it. And I think one thing that happens with, with, with genre breaking, you know, um, and Wayne, again, before we started the show on one of the proto shows, we were on a panel on genre at a screenwriters conference. And oh, yeah, that's someone right. Asked, yeah, and, <laughs> and someone asked the question, um, they asked the question, if, you know, if Superman had never happened, would there be a superhero genre? And my answer, my answer was yes. It just would have been based on Batman instead. <laughs> the question becomes, you know, can we ever not have a genre? And not really, because the second someone writes a second book with that same basic premise, then genre tropes just start to, you know, just start to happen. And when you get attached to a genre, the superhero, the Western, the romance, you, what you're becoming attached to is you're, if you say I'm a, or music, I, I am a fan of hip hop. That means that I'm expecting certain things. I mean, one of those things is rhymes. And if people make a rap song that doesn't rhyme, that starts to become a little weird. And, you know, is it really rap or is it spoken word? You know, like, like that becomes that becomes a question that I think some people want the familiarity more than other people. But as you move farther and farther away, you end up with the problem Hannah had, where if I can no longer recognize this as that thing, is it that thing anymore? Do I count? do I count this as a Western just because you're telling me that or a detective story just because you're telling me that, or does my detective story need to have a mystery that I can solve? My wife is a big Agatha Christie fan. And one of the problems with Agatha Christie um, books, as far as, as far as mysteries go is they're not really solvable. Are you serious? Like if I read a Shirley, well, I mean, they're solvable in, in that, like I know them because I know Agatha Christie tropes. 
So like I know so like so like I think you can solve it as a reader, but not oh, as a okay, detective. Because so yeah, yeah, I'm like I was like Sherlock <laughs> yeah. Holmes. You can't like in my opinion Sherlock Holmes stories. Like as a reader, you can't solve the mystery. But because yeah. they're too hard. But yeah. Because the, the, cause the, cause yeah, the but, but writer get, doesn't leave out clues. But Agatha Christie, if you read closely, you can solve it. Yeah, but like my point being, you can solve it because you know what you're looking for in Agatha Christie books, but it's not a detective story in the same way that like you're looking for writer tricks. You're not looking for clues as a detective would. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, but that's a huge problem in all mystery fiction. Yeah, well, and it well, and it varies from, and I'd say it varies from 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 story to story, but what are you looking for when you're looking at a detective story? Or okay, I'll give you an a, even even better one, something completely out there. What about a detective like a hard-boiled I don't know, like I'm trying to think of a of a movie that's like a detective movie. There are a lot of detective movies where you're following a detective, but there's nothing to solve. <laughs> it's just that the character happens to be yeah. a detective diehard, you know, is, is he's a, you know, he's, he's a police detective. So it's a detective story. <laughs> Columbo, there's nothing to solve because they show you who does it in the first yeah. five minutes in the first scene. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah and, you're just like, you're, and, and then you watch him figure out something you've already, you already know. Uh, and somehow it works. Yeah, and you the, know. That's because they usually do a, how you done it instead of a who done it. Right. Right. Yes. 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 But is that yeah. a mystery still? Perot figures out everyone did it on the, on murder, on, on the Orient Express, and he shouldn't have been able to figure that out. I can tell because I can read it, but he he doesn't have enough information to really solve that crime. <laughs> you know, that's my problem. That's yeah, my problem like, with her books. This which is, is the thing weird. That that problem in particular is not necessarily what Todorov like wrote his whole like essay on detective fiction about. Not to bring him back into this. I can't believe I'm citing him, but whatever. He, his, his thing was like, yeah. you know, okay, so like the whodunit <laughs> is kind of the traditional mystery. Like if you trace it back to Wilkie Collins and the Moonstone, which mm-hmm. no one reads, but if you enjoy detective fiction, you'd enjoy this. It's mm-hmm. a little slow, whatever. Read it. Victorian novel. So like, so, you know, then there's other things that you know who did it. <laughs> you know, like something's going on and the thrill you get from watching or reading mm-hmm. is trying to see how the detective will figure it out because the detective has been framed. So that's, you know, another manifestation of like a mystery genre or, you know, there's, there's another, and then there's another like thing like, and so on and so forth. And they keep splitting. Um, so what he does is he says, okay, well, it's not like the traditional mystery. It's a subsection of this mystery. Cause like, yeah, I mean, like, this is what, we get into with you know romance fiction now too because you can people can say oh I want to read a romance but you know there's Regency fiction there's Edwardian fiction there's Christian inspirational fiction there's Christian inspirational Regency fiction like it goes on and on and on and uh, even like you know fan fiction um, Zoe again uh, Zoe Ackman like recommended uh, Archive of Their Own as like this crazy fan fiction website where you can literally using the tags narrow down everything you want like if you want a love triangle you can have that if you want like a certain couple like interacting based on the plot of like you've got mail but as like Harry Potter characters or something you can find that like you can really customize your reader experience like down to exactly what you want to read <laughs> um, which gets back into a sort of kind of marketing, but 
it's there. So we, we have micro genres like micro breweries. I mean, that's what Netflix does too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, I was going to add, I was going to add to the detective story. You've got the, you've got the hard boiled detective fiction, which isn't, yeah. is, isn't so much about solving the crime as it is about watching the hero solve the crime. Yeah. And I'm thinking of like the, the Raymond Chandler formula. You know, it's 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 more getting into his head as he descends into this world of utter not chaos, but malcontent <laughs> as as everyone it, like it, it's it's watching it's watching the virtuous yet dark hard boiled detective because, you know, he's never he's never a nice guy. You know, he's a guy who has problems, but is still playing for the side of the angels, watching him descend into the world of crime and trying to maintain you know, his decency as he, as he tries to catch the bad guy. I I said this before uh, on the, my comment, but I feel like if of all the episodes, this is the episode where we really can't resolve resolve nothing. nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you can resolve this one because it's a problem that doesn't really have an answer. Mm -hmm. We're almost saying like when we when we say why do people like genre, we might as well be saying why do people like things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> it, it really is that vague, and I don't know that that's a problem, it, so much as it's something that's worth considering and thinking about mm-hmm. because we can't escape genre. I said at the very beginning, one of the things that I hate is when people say, "Oh well," it, you know, and I like a lot of the. I'm the guy who actually goes out and sees like all the Academy Award contenders that no one's ever heard of. I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, again, by the way, see eighth grade, eighth grade's great movie. Um, But when you go out and you see these things, I wouldn't say eighth grade doesn't have a genre. I'm sure I'm I'm certain people will say, well, no, that's a real movie. That's a thinking movie. It's it's a non-genre movie. Unlike all that superhero crap that you like, it does have a genre. It's it's entirely a Bildens Roman. It's a coming of age story and it's brilliant and beautiful, but it's not what we think of as the pejorative genre. So, you know, it's got tropes. It follows them and it plays with them and it tries to it tries to subvert a lot of them. And that's what makes it an interesting exercise in in storytelling. (laughs) I guess I guess I guess guess we're done. We have no more comments. (laughs) No, I I, I I think you're right with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. And it's a weird thing because I don't know how to even like I'm not even sure with genre. You have, you know, we said we're going to talk about genre in general. Not only have we not resolved it, I don't know what the question is even. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and, and that is so odd because like, because, because I think it is something that's fascinating to talk about. It's something that there mm-hmm. people have been writing dissertations about this for years. Like I said, this is, these are arguments that happen in academia for a hundred years. And it's, and I don't think we're any closer to figuring it out other than the fact that like, like as Hannah said, you know, there's the argument that, Oh, well, genre, as I just said, genre is bad. And then there's real art. That argument's bullshit. But other than that, I don't know what to say about it other than just that it's bullshit. I mean, it's certainly, it can certainly like help us guide how we ask questions. Like I, you know, have pointed out that, you know, romance is coded a different way than sci-fi. And Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, when we say like, you know, people don't want to talk about the romance genre or take it seriously, what does that mean? Like, what, what do we value? <laughs> you know, um, or, or, you know, I, I, yeah. you know, I guess yeah. I have to give 
Todorov and his terrible essay real credit because it is very hard to talk coherently about genre without going into 20 different directions. And with that ringing endorsement, we will link to it in the show notes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, God. Uh, I do not some... want to bring Tara back, no matter what I've been saying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll put up a broken link. <laughs> uh, even without resolving anything, I, I think like so many of these shows, this is a fun conversation because it's yeah. something that's interesting to sort of dwell on. And I don't, again, I don't know that I need to have an answer because I don't know that I know the yeah. question, but it is something that I like considering. Well, you know, genre gives us something to to think about with any of these things we approach any of our, our fictions you know, when you think about them in terms of genre it sets up a set of not only expectations but a set of questions and then you know, within those questions is you know how much is this the genre how much does this subvert the genre i think you know, those are all things that are worth looking at when we're for those of us who like to analyze the things we we experience <laughs> and, and watch it gives us things to think about and 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 you know and and for everybody else if it just gives you guidance you know I like Westerns. Okay, go to that section of, of Best Buy or, or wherever, you know, this stuff is. That's valuable as well. It, you know, there's a lot of content out there. If you can rule out a lot of it because of stuff you don't like, so be it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's just fun to watch robots fight. I yeah, guess. yeah, that's that's good <laughs> for some people. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Well, Hannah, uh, definitely. Thanks for coming yeah, back. Thank you once much. again. You are welcome anytime. Always. I mean, you uh, you've been on like three of the last six shows, <laughs> <laughs> so I think you realize that by now. <laughs> always, you can always come back. Uh, where can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers, and I also want to give a shout out to. Um, my colleague Zoe that I cited um, and her Twitter handle is at Hedros. You should follow her and if you're an academic, you should catch her panel at MLA where she's going to be discussing some of the things I talked about. I basically drew um, what I cited from her 18th century studies paper. Um, It was really good. She's a great speaker. So Good. We'll we'll link to her too. Thanks Zoe. She does not know I'm doing this. Uh, oh, well, we should totally just brought her on the show. <laughs> Wayne, what about you? Uh, same as always. Uh, I have a blog that hasn't been updated. I have Twitter I never use. You can find me at Vox Popcast, better than any place else these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. And you can find me at Chris Maverick on Twitter. You can follow my blog at www.chrismaverick.com. Please follow the show at Vox Popcast on Twitter and follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com. Subscribe to it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever podcasts come from. And if you subscribe to it, leave us a review. We haven't gotten one in a while and we are sad and I cry myself to sleep last night because I'm a pathetic, lonely little person who needs your love, who <laughs> needs you to write podcast reviews. Also, they help other people find the show and I want to be famous. So, <laughs> Validate us. Yes, Validate us. Give us your love. <laughs> we need that. Not only are we comics geeks, we're comics academics that no lonely or life exist. Hey, at least you do comics. I study 19th century novels. I was going to say okay. I, yeah, right. I was going to say 19th century yeah. okay. <laughs> like, Jane Austen has never gone away. Yeah, Jane Austen yeah. has a fandom right now. We have to do a show about that one day. There, there's so much to say about you know Jane Austen cosplay and everything. <laughs> anyway. 
That's a future show. But yes, follow the blog, write us reviews. If you write us a review, we will read it on the show and talk about it. And thank you profusely. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song that is closing out this and every episode and is totally not too long because that's why I haven't said it the last couple of shows, even though yeah, it's long. But I love it. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on, show, Hannah. Thanks. Thanks for listening at home, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.